Hi, this is Stephen Saltzman, and you're listening to Cracking the Code of Spy Movies with Dan and Tom. Since this is the 60th anniversary of James Bond movies, we invited a very special guest to join us today to talk about it and a lot more. Stephen Saltzman. Thanks for joining us today, Stephen. Oh, thank you for having me. You have great taste in guests. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do, don't we? (laughs) All right. This is the 60th anniversary of the release of Dr. No and the beginning of Ian Productions' sixth decade-plus dominance in the spy movie genre. Your father, Harry Saltzman, along with Albert Cubby Broccoli, produced the first nine James Bond movies based on Ian Fleming's work. So from Dr. No in 1962 through The Man with the Golden Gun in 1974. What are your reflections, Stephen, on this 60th anniversary and the huge role your dad played in bringing James Bond to the big screen? Well, I think, above all, Harry had a sense, that's my dad, had a sense that it was essential never to allow the audience to get bored. And I think if you look at the way in which the films were, you always had something exciting. And it's really an old, there's a secret source in all this, which is good against evil. And that translates into every culture, every religion, pretty much anywhere in the world, we understand the concept of good versus evil. And uh, my father was completely obsessed with that aspect of the secret source. Absolutely. It wasn't just in Bond either. Because, you know, if you look at Harry Palmer, it was still good versus evil, even in in that series. And somehow, when you look at Harry Palmer very briefly, the baddies have not really changed, have they? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) No, they haven't. And really, this is what the world is always about, right? It's always good versus evil and... But hopefully, that's a universal truth, isn't it? Hopefully, hopefully, good win. Take a look at, say, the Bond genre. Yes. You definitely had the Bond baddie and the Bond goodie, and you also had the Bond girl. It's yes. almost come like a. It's become a concept of like Kleenex. <laughs> we we don't actually know that Kleenex is a brand, right? Uh, I, but the reality is, you need to have a baddie to have a goodie. That's mm-hmm. very true. And, and that formula has actually survived 60 years because it, at all times, and it was actually taken lots of different things like Mission Impossible just took that formula okay. hand in glove. Yes. Concept of how do we fix something? Batman did the same thing in the 60s TV series. It was always putting someone in peril. How does good triumph over evil? Yeah, it's a great formula. It works for Bond and it works now for many, many other movies as well. Could you talk a little bit about your father's role in acquiring the rights to the James Bond movies and kind of the, the workings he had with Ian Fleming, because really I think it's your dad's negotiations with the Fleming people is, is exactly why we continue to see James Bond movies right now. That's a very fair question too. The reality is that Ian has trying very hard to make the film prior to my father getting involved and had failed. He, there was a TV version in America. Yes. There was a, uh, people had lied to him and he'd actually come across Hollywood. And I got to be honest with you, the relationship with my father and Cubby came about because my father has a ticking clock to actually get a script done before his option failed. But having said that, I think Ian, my father had a relationship of, of trust. Because at the end of the day, Ian had it, had it up to his eyes with everybody promising something. Yeah. And he trusted my father to get the work done. 
they'd been in the trenches together. There's some conversation about them being both placed in Ontario and Canada called Camp X. Yes. And um, in fact, also Roald Dahl was supposed to be there as well. And this is an area where Canadians were being prepared to enter the war by Americans who are typically neutral. But if you look on any of the services like Google or Wikipedia, there's a lot written about Camp X. And uh, my father was certainly at Camp X. He spoke fluent French and had already had some experience in Europe because my father had also done some work in France, um, specifically in variety and um, entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so he was, and he was Canadian, and that was very helpful for him to come into the theatre of war as a a bilingual uh, person. But my father actually fought in American uniform. He was seconded from Canada. And when America came into the war, my father wore an American soldier's outfit uh, to do so. And during that whole period, I get a sense that um, Ian and my father had a kind of knowledge of how to trust one another. Ian Fleming was working for the Times of London, Mm -hmm. and my father was working for the organization that existed called the OSS before the CIA. Yes, yes. And the two of them them had a kind of a a relationship where they could understand each other and be um, trusted one another. Yeah. So this whole business of Hollywood and films was to a large degree anathema to Ian Fleming, who understood a man's bond, and my father helped guide him through that process. But the reality was my father did not have the 500 pounds necessary to pay for the script. And Cubby had much better distributed relationships, certainly with people at United Artists like Arthur Krim mm-hmm. and uh, the head of publicity, Maya Beck. And all those people were able to actually take a, and David Picker were all able to make a decision on an introduction by Harry and Cubby on a trip to New York to actually make the movie. And that was really what Kirby was strong at. Kirby was certainly uh, knew Hollywood in a better way than my father did. Yeah, and uh, really, your father's, like you said, Ian Fleming in the war, of course, with the naval intelligence, and your dad had, like you said, the OSS, was involved in this spy world as well. So there was probably a symbiotic relationship between Ian Fleming and your dad there as well to kind of bring things along with that relationship. So that was kind of cool. What I was going to say was that at that time, there was a lot of blah, blah about people operating in Hollywood. And he'd had a lot of failures. And my father knew that his weakness was what Cubby's strength was. So whilst Harry recognized the gift of what Bond was in the written page and how it might translate to a movie, he did not have the the platform, the access or the network necessary to get it financed. And um, that's where Cubby's strength came in. But remember, Dr. No went horribly over budget. Yes. And at the time, the studio who would now today say, okay, over budget, big deal. The studio at the time had a big risk because they really were talking about 1963 money. And it was huge for that. Yeah. And it was a foreign act. It was English. It was uh, untested. So there was a lot of people, Arthur Krim, David Picker, and um, Maya Beck and United Artists who truly banked on the relationship that Cubby brought. So Cubby 
did the finance and the, the money side. Yeah. And Harry had the vision that a book could turn into this film because these books had been available for a while before my father optioned them. Yes. And I must tell you something, Magwitz's script didn't hurt either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good script. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that great, that was a great relationship because you're saying the partnership between Cubby and your dad, each brought something to the table that the other didn't have, which was terrific. And I think uh, your dad's relationship with Ian Fleming in working out the agreement in the first place, it included something that said, I think that if this was successful, and I think your dad working with Fleming's folks said this, if it was successful that, and they ran out of Ian Fleming material, because Fleming didn't write 20 or 30 or 40 books, he had like 11 novels and some short stories and whatever, that if it they ran out of Fleming material, that they'd be able to move on and produce and come up with original Bond movies in the future, which is why today... Well, just, just think of Dan, just think about the fact that back in 1963, my father thought this would go run and yes. run and run and they'd run out of the books. Yeah. That is an incredible reality. <laughs> and if you look yeah. at the contract <clears throat> I sent you, yep. he t it specifically says subjects and the character. Yep. Because the reality is my father saw this as something that would run and run and run. Yes. Like a bit like the um, Ivanhoe series, like the series which has every week you need another episode, you know? Yeah, the vision. Yeah, yeah the, the vision, vision on that. The vision on that was fantastic. And, and literally, that's why we have Bond movies today because of your dad. So that's fantastic, and that kind of vision few people have. So that. Well, and I also, I also like great. how you were. I also like how you were talking about though how it was. Your dad said, you know what? I need help here. I need somebody that can do X. Mm -hmm. And then we need somebody else that can do Y. And how they're willing to say, I need help here. Go and find the right people to do that. And they were able to do it. I, I mean, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about a symbiotic relationship. I tell you something. Last week or uh, 10 days ago, I was in London and I saw Cubby and Harry's desk because they worked at a desk together. Yes. And I don't think the piece of paper was what kept the partnership together. I think you partnerships work when you feel both partners are doing something and you do it because you want to be in partnership, not because a piece of paper says you have to be. Yeah. And to a large degree, you can see how the movies changed when Harry no longer was doing them. And that kind of gives you a sense of what each person brought to the party. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, yeah, um, Absolutely. Yeah, you said a little bit ago that your dad really was responsible for what we see on the screen, the spectacular presentation we see on the screen with Bond. Because your dad, and you mentioned this, that he, he had done some work in Europe before this, right? Booking acts. Didn't he book acts for circuses and stuff like that at one yeah, time? Yeah, he absolutely did. And variety yeah. in France as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But the concept is to be, to be in show business. And I think that if you if think about it, when you look at Bond, there was a kind of almost tongue-in-cheek reality. I also think that my father made another huge awareness, which is prior to Bond, there were only female icons in Hollywood, really, whilst they were attractive to men. And he brought a, a male icon to be attractive to women. Uh -huh. And if you think about it, this is another huge, huge awareness and part of the secret source. Okay, we had Humphrey Bogart and Clint Eastwood, etc., but they were never marketed as eye candy for women. 
they were I by car they were mainly he man action man figures or kind of like uh, macho people. Mm-hmm. But my father realized that you could actually create eye candy for women. And I think if you look at Bond, and certainly how it was in the 60s for men, you know, the women who were meeting men in the 60s saying, have I married a James Bond? Have I got a man with the same amount of charisma? <laughs> and that was another extraordinary aspect that I believe that my father understood, certainly when he was fighting for Sean, which was already somebody that the studio did not want yeah. because they wanted to go with an American or a, uh, a person that would be a, a safer bet. But I think that rough edge of choosing Sean and really pushing that Sean is the one is part of the extraordinary success because all the bonds that came after after um, definitely owe something, in my mind, to the original bond. Oh, absolutely. There's no question that Sean Connery set the bar for the rest of the bonds. And Fleming, I think, in the beginning, he was like, eh, he didn't know for sure if he liked Connery or not. But by From Russia With Love, he would loved him. And then later he wrote into his last novel, I believe he wrote, that of the Scottish uh, origins of uh, Bond. So he, he loved Connery. So, yeah, Connery, you're right. He set the bar. I think also... <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I would also say that first 10 minutes of Dr. No had to set the boat off. And that goes down in my mind as one of the best 10 minutes of the first film of it, of any film anywhere. I agree. Yeah. You could not have written a better introduction to James Bond on the big screen than the first 10 minutes of Dr. No. That was fabulous. Absolutely. 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 And I mean, I mean that, you know, uh, there was a sense. I also really, I personally love the first 10 minutes of Thunderball too in Paris yes. with Adolfo Celli. Yes. I mean, a whole, you know, setting the scene because at the end of the day, if you think about it, there's some bad things happen to Bond or bad things happen in the world. Bond has the right, the wrongs, but the very end scenes are always about revenge and the payoff to the audience of what happened to that man who was so terrible, the baddie. And to be honest with you, I think my father spent a lot of time trying to figure out the cinematic payoff for the audience of how to dispatch the bad person. Uh, okay. Yeah. And it could have been piranhas. It could have been sharks. It could be, you remember that scene with the electric kind of electric chairs? Yes. Yes. At, at the beginning of Thunderball. I mean, in my mind, all those kind of things are really um, what my father's actual touches were, especially like Lottie Lenya's Rosa Klebs, um, sorry, Rosa Klebs shoes. And yes. the way in which, but um, whilst we're here, I might tell you something you haven't asked me. What were my father's favorite bits? Okay. Yeah. So without question, my father's favorite bit was the, the Robert Shaw fight on the train in Rush with Love. Oh, you can't beat that. Fantastic. <laughs> he he took the view that that was really no gadget. It was gritty. And remember, during that whole period, none of it was green screen. It was everything you saw, yes. even Live and Let Die, you saw was actually filmed. You yes. know? So now you might have tweaked the color. You might have done some grading, etc. But when you look at Rush with Love, when you look at Thunderball, Everything you see there, with the exception of, say, some of the miniatures were used in the Thunderball underwater scenes, um, 
I'm sorry to skip around, but I'm so excited about the subject. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So are we. So Thunderball is interesting because if you think about Thunderball, it was before Jack Tushto made his movies underwater. They didn't have the cameras to shoot it. So much money, like 15, 16 million U.S. dollars of money from the 70s were used, or 60s rather, were used to make Thunderball and to actually try and film underwater sequences, which is revolutionary. At the time, yes. That was so cool. It was. Now, I do think to a large degree, because we've seen so many things since then, there's a bit of datedness, but it still holds together. It's still such a a forward-thinking movie ahead of its time in so many ways. Yes. And this is exactly what we're saying, that your dad, his his experience booking the circuses and so on and, and everything else, he had this idea of putting it on the screen, showing it on the screen, because I think at one point they they stopped using elephants in the circus because it was too expensive to transport them and feed them. And then the interest in the circus kind of fell off. And your dad said, hey, these movies, Bond movies, it's show business, really. It's a show. Give them their elephants. And I, think- I absolutely <laughs> guarantee you this is my father's voice. You're speaking my father's voice because his view was it was a, a cardinal sin to bore the audience. Yeah, there you at go. No point, at no point in a Bond movie, if you look at Bond movies, they were paced. There was always the opening scene mm-hmm. followed by an extraordinary moment of um, sending somebody on a mission. You know, all the bits and pieces are there. Look at the opening of Goldfinger, for instance. Look at the opening of... It's just extraordinary amounts of things. Now, I also think you need to put everything in perspective with where we were in the 60s. In the 60s, we weren't traveling. We had Nobody knew about places like Japan. I mean, if you think about it, when they made You Only Live Twice, you know, Japan had just finished a war where they were attacking everybody in the rest of the world. And they'd just come back with the Olympics in 65, but it's still nobody had seen any of this place. And so it's almost like a travel log. Bond was like a travel log, taking you to places all over the world. And those places today, whether it's PP Island in, in, the, in, in Thailand or some uh, a volcano in, in near um, Mount Fuji, all these places today. <laughs> Look at Pitts Gloria in, in Murren. Yes. All these places today are still selling 50, 30, 40, 50 years after James Bond. This is where James Bond came. This is where he went. It's a tr- the greatest uh, travelogue documentary of the world. And Bond went there first, whether yes. it's the mountains of Pittsburgh, whether it's South America, whether it's – it's literally Bond was there first and made people want to go there, put him on the bucket list. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Tom absolutely. and I have been to over 100 of the James Bond filming locations, including Piz Gloria and so on. So, yeah, and and it continues. And you're, But you're right. It was a time, when you look at it, that people weren't traveling. They weren't jumping on planes, flying all over the world. They never saw Jamaica before or whatever. And so it was a travelogue, but it introduced people to a whole new culture, many new cultures all over the world that, you know, sitting in your house, you wouldn't be able to do. And so that well, was pretty fascinating. Cool. You said that because I have here, and if you wish, I'll send them to you sure. uh, a photo of the inside of my father's passport. So <laughs> that would be awesome. imagine, imagine the sixties. You just imagine the sixties traveling like diplomats all over the world. Yeah. And of course I also feel very blessed because I got to do those travels too. 
But yes, we're going to ask you about that. Work. We yeah. want to ask you about that because that is something I think you have a unique perspective, not only because of your dad, but when you were a young boy and, and all the filming was going on, Dr. No and so on, when you and I talked in previous conversations, you said, Stephen, that you were on location for the filming of a lot of those movies, right? So it certainly was, and so it was really us. helpful. For me, the filming was basically the family business. So the family business would go filming, and I always wanted the filming to occur during my vacation time in the summer <laughs> because that would always be the best. Yeah. Um, my parents were very, very fastidious about making sure we didn't miss school. So the worst case scenario was when they would travel for films and it was the middle of this, the term oh, and yeah. I couldn't go. But I was very fortunate because a lot of stuff was done in front of me. I was present for all the stuff in New Orleans and Live and Let Die in Jamaica. Wow. I was present for all the filming in the UK for Golden Gun. I was present for Russia with Love, Goldfinger. And I have pictures of of me on set, but I will say that, that without question, I never thought of it as um, something extraordinary. I thought it was the work my parents had to do. Now you asked a question earlier, which is, did the work come home? It most certainly did. Yeah. In that literally the entire group, there were cliques. So as you may or may not know, there was a, a line producer one film was Harry, one film was Cubby, and that would be the producer would be on the set of all the scenes, mm -hmm. and the other producer would be staying in the offices in the UK and handling the relationships with all the different distributors. So it was kind of like a, an A producer and a B producer. That's how they kind of division of labor. And their offices, after a period of time, were across the street from each other. They no longer shared the same desk, mm -hmm. and they would actually have the teams look on both sides. So there was a kind of um, a really great collaborative feeling. The people I grew up with were Ken Adams, who was the producer of all the sets. And the, most per and the other person I saw the most was Maurice Binder, who did all the logos and the opening credits. Yeah. Those two people and their families would be people I would see literally on a weekly basis wow. um, growing up. And with regards to the Bonds, my mother had a very strict rule which was no one was cast in James Bond unless they came for lunch or dinner. Oh. And usually it was, <laughs> no, no, it was, we had to see how they were around the table and it was really family. So the people would come to us and we would meet them and we would actually have lunch with them. And my parents would like to see how they eat because they were very, very big foodies. Yes. And, um, and that was really an important aspect of seeing the person. We did not like snobby people. Mm -hmm. We wanted people who had children and, and, and lived normal lives outside of this role. And that's another part that's interesting here is all the children that grew up around Bond were still together. We still talk to each other. We still see each other. And at the 60th anniversary in the Royal Albert Hall, when I went into the place we were sitting, I found my friends of mine who were part of the Bond family, but were the children of the part of the people that we wow. grew up with. Yeah. And we we cried together, we, we celebrate weddings, happiness, sadness, and death, and bereavement. And it really is a family. Bond is a family. It's not just my family, it's Barbara's family, yeah. uh, it's the Wilson family, 
Um, it's it. People, we've I've known each other since I was born. I yeah. mean, we grew up. We're we're six months apart. You know, uh, we went to each other's parties as children. Yeah. So there's a kind of um. When people say the Bond family, it is not far away from the truth. It really is. And sadly, every day it seems like somebody we're losing somebody from the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, well, and it's good to hear you say that about the family, though, because. Everybody you talk to or you hear about, they always talk about the Bond family. And it's like that story you just told there about, you know, everybody had to come and eat. I love that. That kind of, that really ties together why it's such a a family atmosphere. I mean, to be honest with you, Cubby would actually be on the set and be feeding the crew. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's scenes, even on the earliest footage I have, say of Dr. No, you see the crew eating together in Fleming. Sean, Ursula um, uh, Andres, that this concept of a crew that eats together is just something that is always part of our our, our, our DNA. And it is extraordinarily important to know that Bond was famous for having great film set crew food, crew food. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. I think that raises the relationships to new levels when you eat together because that really is an intimate kind of thing when you're dining together. And I think that's that was so important and I'm that you mentioned that and that's fantastic to hear that. That's Well, especially cool. when I I think about how you were two when Dr. No came out. So as a very young child, you're getting exposed to these meals and stuff like that. That's that's pretty cool. And I used to do a, a mean trade at high school of Roger Moore, uh, selling Roger Moore autographs to supplant <laughs> my pocket money. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Did you really? But Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I was really lucky because I was in high school and my best friend in high school was a guy called David Heyman. And David, who was in school with me, his father, John and Norma, were film producers. But David ended up producing Harry Potter. Wow. Yes. Wow. Oh, I mean, that works out very, well for him. <laughs> yeah, but in the sixties, all these people, Lois Maxwell's son, who we played Money Penny, went to my school. We all were it, it was a very different time, London. Mm-hmm. It was a very small community. And remember, we also punched above our weight because whilst a lot of films were being done in Hollywood in America, the reality was the entire nascent film industry of the UK was James Bond. It ultimately became Star Wars, Superman. Everything was done in London. And mm-hmm. it still is done in London because it's a, there's a kind of a extraordinary quality of, of the crews in the UK. Mm-hmm. Do you have, uh, when you reflect back on being on location for many of the movies, you look back on that and is there one kind of thing that stands out for you, one memory that really stands out for you there that you think, wow, this was something? Well, I certainly think that the, without question, my strongest memory would be Live and Let Die in Louisiana and in the bayous because watching those boats jump and and especially the one where the boats jump into the wedding cake. I mean, all that. And and reality is, you know, Roger was driving the boats and, you know, they had to flood the, 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 um, the lawn there in front of the audience and waiting for the wedding. But they made it, had to do that three or four times, and the the boats actually did what you saw. Yeah. So if you ask me, what do I think? I think that today 
Live and Let Die could not be made, but because I think the subject matter is almost black exploitation. Yeah. But the whole scene going with the whole moment, the experience I had with people like Jeffrey Holder, Yafit Koto, and Tihi, and Julius Harris, um, all those people were extraordinarily nice people. Gloria Hendry. I mean, these are people that I have very, very strong memories, being in Jamaica, being in Ocherias, and also certainly being in Louisiana and the French Quarter Inn. Even that scene, just just that scene when you're when you're seeing the the funeral going down. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of that is very very burnished on my mind. Yes, um, I can imagine. I I just think I just think it's extraordinary. I also have very strong memories of Diamonds Are Forever being in Las Vegas, and also seeing the scene with the Mustang because yes. I was there watching it in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> What an experience, right? Yeah, right. I mean, really, yeah, you have a unique experience of all Dan, of this. Dan, you grew up like that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, I grew there up with um, food, that's for um, sure. <laughs> You know, I, I also think that these people now have a, a dilemma because I think they have a fantastic franchise and I think they have to figure out what's next. Yes. Yes. We were going to ask you what you thought of the future of James Bond. And uh, you're saying now that, yeah, it's going to be an issue. It's going to be a challenge. Well, I, I don't know. You know, you've got one thing, you've got the, the idea of saying it's all a dream and he li- lived on. There were so many little indications about the future that seen. I thought the parallels between last scene in uh, No Time to Die and um, On a Majesty Secret Service were huge. And about the fact that he fell in love, the fact that he felt enamored. But I also think that we may end up be going into this. I, again, I have no inside knowledge, and I certainly don't even raise the subject with them because I understand as a film producer myself, this is something I would never tell anybody outside the link. Sure. But I can say what's very interesting is the people I used for Ipcrest File were the original people they fired from the last movie. Oh. So the people that ended up working for me, Ipcress File, were directors and writers of um, No Time to Die. And um, they would not tell us why they left and quit or why they were fired. But it was quite clear that they did not want the to do the film that they the producers wanted. Okay. And unfortunately in this business, the producer gets to call the shots because they also to pay the checks. Yeah. Yeah. And funny how that works. On, and I can tell you, on Ipcrest file, I learned also how you have to make a lot of choices. And the choices always have an implication on the screen. And um, I have more respect for both Cubby and Harry because I can tell that they had many times a limited budget. Now they don't have that problem anymore. But the limited budget was such that they have to make a decision between a, a flying jetpack or a flying car or, a, mm-hmm. you know, but every moment of the day, it seems as if James Bond actually saw the future before the future became reality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If you, if you think about the gadgets, yeah. But that vision was not created by Ian Fleming. Those were the producers who said, this is how we should take it. And to a large degree, I think it's Mankiewicz's son, uh, who actually wrote one of the scripts, Roald Dahl. Uh, these people like that, actually take things and then you have things like and you have people like ken adam 
who could turn the written word into a script, into a, a set yes. that's just extraordinary. Marvelous. His vision cannot be underestimated. Brilliant. Yes, absolutely. On that, you know, you talk about the gadgets and seeing the futures. So I, I read through some of the some of the works of uh, Richard Maybaum, and they've yeah. got all of, they've got all of his scripts and and the scripts and stuff. Oh, at a library in in Iowa, and so I went out there and I'm looking at those. And there's a section in there talking that was just about research he would do and articles he would find. And, you know, and it'd be like, oh, he found, you know, they would find an article about something that was, you know, brand new and they'd incorporate it into the next Bond movie. And it, and then it became a bigger thing. And it was like, that's pretty cool. It, it seemed like they were forward. There was a push to be forward thinking. It's interesting because I've recently been contacted on Facebook by Maybom's son. Huh? Okay. okay. This is not by accident. My father and certainly Cubby always wanted to know what was coming down the road next. Because remember, again, this period, there was no internet. It was uh, You used to get the newspaper about the news the day after. Uh, we had no television news like you have today. Mm -hmm. So the world was less informed. So there was a kind of duty of... Uh, my father had a sense that, that was uh, really important because he was obsessed with news to be able to let people know about certain things. So you have what I call the second theme. If you look at Thunderball, the second theme was about the power of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. If you look at, say, the Goldfinger, the power of economy and who holds the gold makes the rules. There is always a kind of political trend. So there was an under theme. And um, That's good. this is That's something good. that is really true. Now, I even think in that film, which I can't remember what it was called, where there was all about the megalomaniac Rupert Murdoch type, which was one done by Barbara uh, five or six years back. Do you remember the one where there was one person who was going to take over the world? Oh, yeah. It was the, a bond the, the, John, with uh, Jonathan Price. Uh, yeah, um, John Price. That, that's oh, the one. I mean, tomorrow, if you think yeah, tomorrow, about tomorrow, it, never tomorrow, tomorrow never dies. Tomorrow never dies. That, without question, was a look at succession. If that had not been made, they would never made that episode television show about the Murdochs. I mean, that's where it all started. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Solex in, in Golden Gun. Yes. There is always a little something. And also there was one Bond movie a while back all about North Korea. There's yes. always a little bit of Dying current of affairs in it. So on top of the actual current affairs, whether it was the Russians and Russia with Love, whether it was Thunderball, whether it was what's happening with nukes, and as I said, in Thunderball, um, it, there's an element of kind of like a, a duty of care to bring people historically right. Rush with Love was certainly historically right. It showed the power of the, the Iron Curtain. It showed the power of, of, of Turkey, what's going on behind. There's, a, there's always some grain of truth, mm -hmm. historic grain of truth. Yeah, that's interesting because that's never really talked about. And so it's great that you brought that up because that's, that's a new way and a new angle of looking at all of the all of the Bond movies. That's pretty interesting stuff. Cool. That is. Yeah. So before we wrap up talking about the Bond piece 
of your father's work experience and your life growing up with that. You, we started this talking about the 60th anniversary of James Bond, and there was that big event you mentioned at the Royal Albert Hall for the 60th anniversary. Can you talk about that event and what that meant to you because you grew up with this? Well, it actually surprised me. It surprises me every time I go to one of these events, and it happened different James Bond clubs in the world, like one in Switzerland, one in Germany, one in France, one in the UK. There's an extraordinary impact of James Bond. So whilst I see this as one thing, the reality is on a global level, it means something very much more to um, different people because it's been in their life for the entire 50 or 60 years of their lives. And um, they've grown with it and it is it, very important. And I've met fans and when I arrived at the Royal Albert Hall, I met one person who had a pen and I had to write on his T-shirt. And on his T-shirt was Roger Moore's name, Sean Connery's name. Everyone had signed it. Wow. And he said, I never got your father, but I want you because that completes it. And I realized every time I go to these events, how special these experiences are and these anniversaries are for the fans. Because without the fans, we're doing show business for the fans. And it's quite clear that I have a legacy and I take this very seriously to represent my father's vision and what he created because it's extraordinary. And as far as I'm concerned, we may never see something like this again. I mean, really, we've obviously had lots of Star Wars. We've had lots of Mission Impossibles. We've had lots of Born Identities. We even had a lot. But 60 years of James Bond, I don't think anyone's really come close no, no, it's true. It's, 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 it's the, it's the, yeah, it's the length of the character and the the production going on. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got like the MCU. Everything seems to be MCU these days, but yeah. it hasn't been around. They haven't been doing it that long. I mean, it's the longevity that makes this work. Look, I think a lot can be brought to attention of when Bond wants to make an announcement who the new Bond is. The world stops. It's the lead story in every news channel from China. Russia, South America, Canada. What other movie gets that kind of publicity? Now, everyone wants to see Avatar number two. Everyone's saying that's the next big thing. Fantastic. Or even the next Titanic. Fantastic. But the reality is Bond has, who's the new Bond song? What's the new song going to be? Who's going to play it? Who's the girl? It has, it's as, as current today and as interesting to the world's press and fascination as it was in 1963. In fact, more so. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And people are waiting with bated breath to find out what's going to happen next with the whole franchise, with who's going to be Bond. It's all fantastic. And 60 years of it. And your dad, again, huge part in establishing not only in the beginning what Bond was about, but what's happening today, really. Again. Uh, I think to a large degree, I have to agree with you. I think that set the ball rolling. Yes. And, you know, look at a company like Aston Martin, who didn't believe in what they were doing. So much so they took the car they used in Goldfinger, fixed the hole in the roof and sold it in Miami because they didn't want to lose a sale. The reality is now that car today, the original car that they fixed up, would be worth so much more money. But my father had the vision, the book. Even look at John F. Kennedy. He was asked, what's his favorite book? And he said, James Bond. Yes. Yep. I mean, from Russia with everybody love. was into it. Yep. 
Now, Stephen, tell us one, one last story about the location stuff. I know in You Only Live Twice, there was an incident where something occurred that saved your dad's life. It actually saved James Bond's life, too. Because, <laughs> so in 1965, my father and, or I don't know, it might have been 64, actually, my father and a whole bunch of rest of James Bond crew, including his partner and uh, Ken Adam, all flew out to Japan to ascertain where they're going to film You Only Live Twice. And my father, as I told you before, we're a family of foodies, was offered the chance to see a karate exhibition and eat sushi. And I don't think anyone really knew what sushi was back in 65 or 64, but I can tell you my father would be intrigued by it. And so he simply said to everybody, we're not going back to London tonight. We're going to stay another day, and we're going to do this karate exhibition, and um, and we're going to eat sushi. And the flight they were supposed to go on was called British Airways Flight Nine Eleven, and it is famous because the entire plane crashed into yeah. Mount Fuji. And had my father wow. and the rest of the James Bond crew had been on that, Cubby Broccoli, etc., um, wow. one would imagine that it would have had an impact on the rest of the series. But I would have also been an orphan. And I found out about that from a discussion I had with Maurice Binder on the set of You Only Live Twice when um, I was learning how to drive in the Mini Moke. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Which was, by the way, my first car was the Mini Moke from You Only Live Twice. Uh, I'm kidding. (laughs) All right. Well, that was a good story. All right. Yep. We'll, we'll, we'll it's a train. true story. And by the way, you can look it up on Wikipedia. Look yeah. down Flight 911. It's yeah. there. Mount Fuji. Everything is in black and white. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So right. if they if they hadn't if they hadn't wanted wow. to go get some sushi and some karate, they would have been on that plane. Wow. Well, I would actually say there's your slug line. How sushi and karate saved James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> There that's a f- that's fascinating. It's just it is. It's a great uh, story. Yeah, We're glad the reality, he decided. Remember, we just did not have world air travel, and it was complicated, expensive, and um, it just was just mind blowing. But yeah. for me, it was my normal. Yeah. I did not see that as something extraordinary, like I didn't see it was extraordinary that a famous person would be at lunch or dinner, yeah. because. They had kids, and I cared about their kids. So when Roger Moore would come over, I'd say, is Jeffrey and Deborah coming? I really only (laughs) cared about who I was going to see, you know, whether I'm going to see family, the the children, because we're kids, you know? And we, and by the way, I'll tell you one last inside story. Okay. My parents used to have these um, lunches on Saturdays, and the famous people would come with their kids and the kids would always perform for the parents after lunch. And in the home we had, we had like kind of a a raised room. So it looked like a bit like a stage and we would perform. We'd do terrible magic tricks. We'd sing, we'd be (laughs) atrocious, but just horrible. (laughs) However, without question, this was something that the parents would love. And that's when you realize, you know, whether you're Roger Moore or you're Harry Saltzman or you're a man down the street, there's a kind, you have a kid, you care about their homework, you care about their well-being, you care about their education, 
And it's absolutely uh, vital, as far as I'm concerned, that you realize that all these famous people are just normal. They have the same problems you have, the same issues you have, same concerns you have. And um, that's what I want to get. These are, these, are, these are only famous because of their works. Yeah. But every day of the week, they have the same concerns. Sure. This is good. Did I that's, pay the that's the Did unique the vision. That's the Sorry? unique vision you have that I think that perspective is uh, is so valuable to share with everyone. That's that's really cool, Stephen. Thank you for that story. And, and the challenges were always how to take something and make it theatrical so that it becomes entertaining as well. Yes. I mean, really, just doing something as simple as uh, killing somebody, as my father would say, shooting someone dead takes five seconds. I need to be two minutes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Put it on the screen. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you go back and bond, you look at the shock, that, that, the piranhas. Do you remember the one of the piranhas? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, who'd ever heard of piranhas that time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, that that kind of clever vision and writing is part of the whole Bond story. That's and I think a lot fun. has a lot of credit has to be given to the actual scriptwriters because many of those things were extrapolated out of the books, but they weren't in the original books. Yes, I mean, the films actually took it to another level. I think I don't think they did. I don't think they were better than the books, but I think they were unto themselves yes that, that's a good way of putting it unto themselves yeah right i remember for instance okay i'll give you another story so i remember during living and die my father said to me we're going to spain i said what we're going where we're going to spain i said okay we're going to spain what are we going to do there we're going to meet an artist oh really you're going to meet an artist what's this artist going to do he's going to draw the tarot cards for live and let die so i arrived there i have pictures taken with him and wow. it turns out we're with Salvador Dali. I mean, <laughs> and, yeah, just some artist. <laughs> yeah, but for me, as a, a a twelve or thirteen year old boy, it's the most boring thing in the world. I'm going to go and hang out with a, an artist, and it turns out, by the way, his paintings or his drawings were too pornographic for it to be used. Oh my God, really? <laughs> but the tarot cards were kind of doctored. But the tarot cards that Jane Seymour used were all done by Salvador Dali. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so he cleaned them up a little. <laughs> yeah, but 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 <sighs> wow. I, I remember Jane Seymour. So Jane came over to the house and she was just married to one of the Attenborough's sons. And about six months ago, sorry, no, about a year and a half ago, I was in Monaco at an event, and I said to Jane, I saw Jane there, and I said, how are you? She said, oh, your father discovered me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and you talked about dad's other films. I mean, he discovered Olivia Newton-John even before she did Grease. She was in a terrible movie with he made with Don Kirshner called Tomorrow. Uh -huh. I mean, he, the last, he even made a film with Herb Ross called Nijinsky. He made a film, his last film was with the Mere Costa Rica. It was called The Day of the Gypsies. But, you know, there's some, there's some howlers in there. I mean, there was Iron Petticoat with Bob Hope, who was another one of his people he used to know a lot of. I mean, there's a lot of movies. I don't know if you saw it. Call Me Buona was also not such a great movie. Right. I mean, you, you have hits, you have misses. But boy, when you have hits like Bond, 
it, it kind of denigrates the misses, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it does. And of course, all the Harry Palmer stuff, right? Ipcris file, funeral in Berlin, billion dollar brain. I mean, he was in on that and bringing that to the to the big screen yeah, but as well. You got to understand that was seen as not very positive at the time. While while Cubby went on to do Chitty Bang Bang, right? When Harry decided he wanted to do another spy film. I can tell you that did not play well to the home crowd. Sure, I can understand that. But it was a completely different kind of spy. I mean, certainly unbond-like. <laughs> Very much so. And that was part of the thing that I made sure of in the last series that we did for ITV and for AMC in the US, which was to make it unbondy. Yes. And I had some lovely, lovely, lovely uh, compliments from the family about that, the Bond family about Ipcress file. And maybe, maybe we just gave him a way to bring Bond back. That's well, possible. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. At the end of the day, I always think, I think Ipcress is like spy with crown, the, the crown with spies. <laughs> <laughs> it's a kind of period, period spy piece. Yeah. 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 Okay. So since you, since you brought that up, when we yes. talked last time, um, when, when the series came out in the UK, we had a conversation. You asked me what I thought about the sixth episode. Yeah. And right. we, were, we were very couched in how we responded because didn't want to blow it, it. It, we didn't want to blow it. <laughs> and it hadn't come out in the U.S. yet. And now that it has, that episode with what they did with the Harry Palmer character was it received differently in the UK versus what we versus the US? Yeah. No. Well, I think there's I think there's certain areas that are different um, for Europeans than there are for Americans. Certainly, gun violence, uh, issues regarding race, mm-hmm. and issues regarding abortions are mm-hmm. dealt with completely different between America and the UK. I'll give you an example. In the very first or second episode, there's a scene where somebody has an abortion mm-hmm. that's on the film in the UK, whereas that was cut out for America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw um, the UK version then. So, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. That in the American version, they wouldn't, the censor wouldn't allow it. Um, and I think the issue of there's a scene there where uh, the uh, Ashley says something to the effect of, well, I'm black. Right. Now, Yes. The reality is you'd have to say something like I'm an African-American or you'd have to say you would have to not draw attention to that. But the issue of race back in the 60s was a real issue and it's part of the history of America. Yes. And I find to a large degree, whether it's when you're outside of a program like Roots, raising that subject is complicated for Americans because I think they haven't dealt with it internally. You certainly saw that with Black Lives Matter in America mm-hmm. and that whole movement of civil rights. It's still very fresh, whereas Americans see that as one thing about their own DNA, whereas Europeans see it as part of social history. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's as precious. I mean, if you think about integrated marriages and you think about um, integration of culture, you know, you go 10 kilometers in Europe and you're in another country. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) different language, different country, different even sometimes currency. So I do believe there's a kind of openness that doesn't exist simply by proximity. I mean, you can drive for three days in America, you're still with the same country, same dollar, and same yeah. same language. Right. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, you say you say that I was just in Dubrovnik, and we're standing on this hill, and you look across the 
it's a little, little valley and it's Bosnia Herzegovina. And you know, the, the guide we had, he was talking about during the war. It's like, you know, those were my friends <laughs> and all of a sudden, no, there's no question about it. Yeah. And Macedonia as well, yeah. the whole area and Slovenia as well. I mean, yep. all of the Balkans are now friends. And um, I think it's important to understand that when you're making motion pictures, and certainly when you make a formula like Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola tastes the same whether you're in China or you're in, in New York. Um, same thing with McDonald's. There's a kind of homogeny. And I think the trick with James Bond, without question, was the fact that it, it resonates for any culture. Mm-hmm. It was the same it was the same formula that works. Yeah. And um, Dubrovnik, I like that town. I love Croatia. It's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We did a podcast episode on the secret invasion, which uh, was. Which they filmed there, yeah. Filmed partly there. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, so the, the, um, there's an extraordinary. Croatia has an extraordinary film production. They have they, maybe six or seven series go there every year. They did Game of Thrones there. Mm-hmm. And um, they have an extraordinary capability of, of, of quality of crews. And they really understand it. And on top of that, they give ex- great tax credits. So there's a big incentive to film there. Great. All right. So the six-part Ipcris File series that you're an executive producer for that launched on ITV in the UK and is on AMC in, in plus in U.S., everyone should see it. It's a terrific series. It seems to be it was pretty darn successful, and we're hearing rumors that maybe there'll be more coming? <laughs> well, it was certainly a bit like, a bit like Bond. Uh, Dad definitely also got the rights to create, take the character and create more episodes, even if there are no more books. Okay. So that's good. Uh, but there was a one film that was never made called Horse Underwater. Yes. There were four books. It was Horse Underwater, Ipcrest File, Funeral Berlin, and Billion Dollar Brain. And again, Billion Dollar Brain was ahead of its time. Ken Russell did the actual direction. But if you think about it, horrible movie. But the subject matter did not exist. I mean, we didn't have these Billion Dollar Brain computers yeah. at that right. time. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> That's how we first met, Stephen, with... We did yeah, our podcast on, right? Funeral in Berlin. And- My father would dug your podcast. He would <laughs> dug podcasts. Thank but, you very uh, much. That is the biggest honor we could receive. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm speaking from what I know. I like the fact you're both foodies. You yes. more, Dan, than Tom. No, Tom, Tom is too. Tom is too. <laughs> I, have to, I don't talk about it as much, but, I, you know, I, I, I definitely. We both, <laughs> we both love food. Kind of grew up yeah. Italian. We're, you know. <laughs> We love food. Yep. Sitting around a table. I, I definitely would like to do a Bond cookbook. Yeah, that'd be cool. Isn't there one? I, I thought somebody no. did. No? No, I never seen There's one Bond for drinks, I know. <laughs> yeah, there, there is there is a, uh, a James Bond cookbook, Secret Recipes for the Spy, Ooh. in you. <laughs> I have no idea if it's officially sanctioned or anything. <laughs> Wait a second. What do you know about this book? I want to know all about I just, it. I just, looked, I just looked it up. <laughs> there you um, go. Well, I is it is it US? Is it still there? Yeah, you can still get it. Um, Electronic or came out in twenty twenty. Um, I certainly think there'd be a wine, a Bollinger Champagne uh, tome or two. 
Yeah, there should be. Yeah. I know there's one on drinks, shaken, not stirred, yeah. drinks of James Bond, but Listen, I think those are mostly made Again, the, 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 the magic fairy dust that Bond brings to Brad is just extraordinary. Oh, yeah. Well, and I'm going to make a comment on that because you just said Bollinger. And my favorite champagne is Bollinger RD. And I started drinking it, and what's I didn't even champagne? realize. What's the favorite champagne? The Bollinger RD. Yeah. And, and I started drinking it, and I didn't put the association with Bond in my mind when I started drinking it. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wow. Well, it's hard not uh, to now. Yeah, but 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 that's but the thing with it is, I'm sure it came from the Bond stuff. Yeah. Why I started drinking it, but it wasn't a conscious decision on my yeah, part. Yeah, that's a lot of subliminal impact yeah. on people. Product yep. placement in Bond movies. Yep, and it's got more and more and more. I mean, whether yes. it's a car, whether it's a, whether it's Heineken beer. Yes. I mean, it really is in your face. Now it is. Yes, absolutely. Yep. I mean, even, you know, you go back into, you know, on Her Majesty's, the, uh, you know, North of the Caspian and, you know, they just comments like that, just, just, you know, here's a, here's a food that probably a lot of people, you know, in that case, the caviar that a lot of people hadn't tried, but bomb brought it forward and, you know, people started trying it. Yeah. I think there's some people need to think about who's been kind of forgot, been forgotten. I mean, do we really ever attribute someone like Telly Savalas to Bond? I, I, I loved mean, him as Blofeld in yeah. Honor Magic's Secret Service. I think he did a great job. But if you if you yeah. hear Telly Savalas, that's not the first character you think of. No, you're thinking of Kojak and yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. But right. what I'm trying to say is I think there's a lot of, if you go back and look at all the different people, the one thing I think they got, Harry and Cubby really got right, is the casting. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. really, whether it's Robert Shaw, whether it's Adolfo Celli, whether it was a, a, a domino in Thunderball, which is one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen, Claudine Roger. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and have you noticed also, they never went to central casting. They didn't always take the typical uh, Californian blonde kind of girl. Right. They really right. went exotic, even in on on a, um, even if you look at You Only Live Twice, mm-hmm. Wilson had beautiful Japanese women. No one ever seen them before. Yes, yeah. And right. I think, and a lot of French, a lot of French women. Mm-hmm. And I think it's extraordinarily important to mention that Harry and Cubby found beauty throughout the world. Yep, absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. And that's part of the in- intrigue. It's beauty in people, beauty in the landscapes, beauty yep. yeah, in the cultures. Aren't you also intrigued by how you go from a size 14 woman, Ursula Andress, as the beacon or icon of beauty in 63 in Dr. No?, and you go to Halle Berry, I mean, the, the, the gamut of what's beautiful has changed with the, the times. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. Yeah, that's true. like you're saying, it, but, it incorporates the, lo- the local current culture of stuff too, right? The trend. The trend. And I think that's also, it's a mirror of what's in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good uh, way also the way Bond dressed and the way in which things looked, I mean, there was a really, we, we've traveled through history here. Do you guys have a way you'd like to see Bond come back? Ah, uh, you know, punters? I, I, I think if you look at the, where they are, if, if the end of that movie is what the end of that movie is, they've painted themselves a bit in a corner <laughs> a bit, <laughs> and they've got to go 
back to that so that Bond's future really is his past. They're going to have to go back to maybe the 60s or him getting recruited or whatever. And, and that kind of is, to me, a little dissatisfying. Um, well, like a prequel. Yeah, they'll all be prequels because his future has to be his past because he's no longer around. So that part, I, I what don't... What about if they just did another Bond movie and they didn't do it in, so far back, but they went back, say, 10 years? Yeah. Uh, or or go back into a period of between, say, Rush with Love and Goldfinger. So just, just ignore the fact that No Time to Die exists? Yeah. They can make another movie. They don't have to explain it. Yeah, they I mean, say, they will. The I think they probably will do that. They'll, they'll just say, okay, let's just ignore... No Time to Die, and the ending of that. The, the, the satisfying part, I think, as a fan, as a Bond fan or as a fan of anybody watching this kind of stuff, is that you know the end result already. If you, if you know the end game already, then all the prequel stuff is kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, it's a good story. It's nice, but boy. So if I tell you in one and a half years' time, at 12.01 in the evening, you can see the next Bond movie, and you've told me what you just told me, both of you. I'm sure both of you will be in line, ready with your popcorn. <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would agree with it. Dan and I disagree on that one. I think I, I, I'm going to need to hear hear a little bit about it before I'm going to get in that line. They, I, I was very, very disappointed with the way they did that. Yeah, I, I would rather they do a, an Arthur Conan Doyle thing, and when Sherlock Holmes died, and the fans went crazy and said, you can't kill Sherlock Holmes, and then <laughs> the return of Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> he writes. <laughs> well, um, on, on a pure punter, not producer, not involved level, I feel really to a large degree sad too. I feel bereft. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But that sets them up the right to now unbereft me. <laughs> okay. See, now, I, when I saw that movie, I flew to the U.K. to see it because it was in the U.K. before it was in the U.S. So I flew to the U.K. to see that movie, and it was a long flight home <laughs> when you say being bereft, right? Just thinking about that. It was like, I was wow. the Royal Albert Hall. You, yeah. you were at the Royal Albert? I wasn't at the, I wasn't at the Royal Albert. I, was, I went up, uh, We have a colleague of ours who does, uh, does some of these episodes with us, and she's, she's in the Midlands. So I went up there to watch it and met her, and so it was it was nice. But uh, it was, I got to tell you and... something: everybody wanted one thing to see one thing in that movie. James Bond will return. You know, we'll be back at the end. I they st- sat through the credits. The I was one. I was one of them wondering yeah. if they were going to do that. The very last, because quite quite honestly, it would have if if it was the end. It wasn't a bad way to end it. But since they then said James Bond returned, your head's going like, what the? But, you know, I sat there waiting through the credits to see if that yeah, popped yeah. up. Many people and left. And they killed. The problem, the problem is they've also, when you say they made a bit of a problem for themselves, they killed all the Spectre. Right. <laughs> or they, yeah. they outed all the baddies. I mean, really, they have to come back from a long way. And by the way, they had to go for a long way to get Spectre rights back in. That's right. Yeah, right. And now, now they kill them all. And then, of course, if you go backwards in time, then you could bring Spectre back. You could bring yeah. Felix Lighter Lighter back. back. And they you sold bring... all the rights to Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, it's kind of a, 
On a more positive note, you mentioned, I'm going to back up totally here, right? You, when we were talking about the Harry Palmer thing and you said that Horse Underwater wasn't made, was that implying that it might be? Yeah. Awesome. It's okay. a great story. I don't know if you know the story, but the story is fantastic. And um, okay, it would be my, I listen, obviously everyone wants to see Funeral Berlin or Billion Dollar Brain, but I think Horse Underwater is extraordinary. Okay. So are you thinking that's going to be a movie or a series or? <laughs> if you can't answer it, just say you can't answer it. That's fine. <laughs> I think it'll be come in some way, someplace. Okay. Right. We'll leave, All right, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, you asked me on your questions, what else am I? I've got five film projects, five. Wow. And one of them I wrote. Oh, really? Okay. Lockdown. Nice. So I actually decided to do something I'd never done before. I'll tell you two stories. I wrote a story during lockdown and I sold it during lockdown. Wow. So I'm doing, it's a romantic comedy. Don't, worry however having said all that i also optioned a book a spy book okay so um i'm actually and here's where we go into the department Stephen is um giving you a, a scoop because i haven't told anyone about this but i'll tell you so i read a book from an author and a published book and i optioned the book it's called the abbot which it, but it's a french book and um, the book is about the secret service of the Pope. Oh, okay. That could Pope. be very intriguing. <laughs> and, the, and it's all true. There's about 28 books written about it, but this is about the actual man who's the head of the spy service for the, the, Holy, for the Catholic Church. Oh. Uh, it's all true. And I'm so intrigued about the fact that the spy who's not allowed to sin I just found this so interesting. And <laughs> that's, that's kind of an interesting dilemma. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's extraordinary because he does God's work. And this man's bond with the Bible. I mean, there's, yeah. there's no other way to put it. His bond with the Bible. With and the I'm, Bible. I, I, I'm absolutely intrigued by bringing this to the cinema because it's a published work. There's a true story. The, the Catholic Church has a secret service yeah. and they have, a man who runs it called the abbot. And I want to do a story about this. Now, as do, by the way, the Israelis with Mossad, and as do the the Arabs. So all three major religions have a spy service, but right. no one's ever done a film about the spy service of the Catholics and yeah. how they talk to everybody. Wow. That would be interesting. That's an interesting web of, uh, that has to be there. That's, there's got to be some fantastic so when I think I have there. five film projects, that is, you've heard two of them. You might hear yep. from the Pope himself. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just think, I just, you're just, I can hear your mind thinking. <laughs> just think about what these people have to do. Um, there's a relationship, very strong relationship with the other religions. Mm -hmm. And there's a very strong relationship also with major, major Western organizations, mainly the United States mm -hmm. and Latin America. And, you know, if you think truthfully about the end of the Soviet Union, that happened through faith, through the Vatican, through mm -hmm. Lech Valenza, through the Poles, yes. through the Catholic Church. And that dropped the, the Iron Curtain. I mean, it's now back up again. 
But <laughs> there was a period there where all of a sudden the Berlin Wall fell. You mm-hmm. have to give credit to the fact that is definitely a Catholic initiative. And that's maybe why I was very intrigued about the story that I optioned. Okay. Was there, was I, there a Vatican response to the book? No, because there's 28 books about this service. Okay. And this is a fictional story. I have had a little bit of it translated from English to French, or rather French to English. If you want me to send you the the synopsis offline afterwards, I'll send it to you. That'd be great. That'd it, be great. It's kind of spooky. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but the romantic comedy is interesting for me because – you know, when you're on lockdown, you get creative. And um, I'm working with um, James Corden's company. Okay. Awesome. So this is the story you wrote during lockdown. Yeah. Wow. This is going to be fun. <laughs> uh, it, But it's not a spy story, which annoys me, because if it's not a spy story, um, I don't feel like I get to have you on me again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about some spy stuff, and then we'll talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> like we You're are now. Very cool. Like we are yeah. now. I <laughs> me to ask both of you: Do you each have a favorite James Bond? A James Bond person? You mean an actor playing James Bond, or a no, movie? Movie, movie. Uh, well, yeah, I I think really uh, Sean Connery is my favorite as a as a Bond, and From Russia with Love is a terrific movie. Fantastic. Goldfinger and From Russia with Love, I think, are really. Ooh, top movies, almost perfection, really. Yeah, and and for and for me, it this is one of those that it it changes based on the day, but at the top is always from Russia with Love, as you know, it's always one or two for me. I I really liked Goldeneye, um, as as and and License to Kill. So those those three probably are at my top. But again, if you ask me this the next week, I might have a different answer for you. Yeah, what's your favorite? <laughs> Well, I think as a pure spy film, I would say, without question, Rushman Love. Yeah. And especially considering my mother and my grandmother are in the film. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really? Having said that, having said that, as a genre, a movie with the genre of what everything was to do with James Bond, I would say Goldfinger by a mile. Okay. Yeah, yeah Goldfinger. Odd job. The idea of the, uh, the gold... Remember, no one knew what Fort Knox was, and creating that whole thing inside, electrocution, dispatching, odd job, looking, playing, cheating at cards, the yeah. Fontainebleau in Miami, looking, in there. <laughs> painting yeah. the woman in gold. It was just, it had every pastiche. It was like almost like a, a comic book of Bond. It was yes. brilliant. Well, it set, the, it set the blueprint for where the series went. Yeah, that introduced the car. It was a, it was a, a when, milestone. When you watch any James, sorry, say, say, please say it again. I, I crashed you. No, I say it was a milestone of James Bond movies, Goldfinger. It was, you know, it really set the bar for the rest of the movies in terms of the formula. The cars, Absolutely. the gadgets. And remember, yeah. And remember now, whenever you watch a James Bond movie, when you hear the theme of James Bond, he's always being triumphant. They only play it when he's about to do something good. Yep. Yes. Okay. That's true. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. A kind of a, kind of like a warning. Here he comes. Here he comes. He's about to be born. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, good stuff. I actually think there's two or three scenes that will stay with me forever, and without question, 
the flying boats in the Villette Dye were just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was just special. I also think the scene, that the train scene, the fight in the train, mm-hmm. just yeah. Robert Short. There was a there's a sense of grit. Yes. Yes. That really was unique to that scene. Yeah, you and ain't no wine, that scene but is you're used. the one on your knees. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. I don't think you could have said <laughs> anything could have been improved in that scene. I agree. I totally, totally, totally adored it. Yes. And I think it stands the test of time. Yes. Like you and Tom. we're still going (laughs) all right so i want to you were talking about the the films you're doing so i want to do another little bit of shift and talk about some of the other stuff you're doing because i mean it's amazing where the the different irons you have in the fires you're a renaissance man yeah you're a renaissance man so in the bond movies they highlighted the high-end cars and i know that you've got an interest in supercars I mean, do you think that comes from growing up with with the whole Bond you know, family? It certainly helped me have access to the cars I wanted, especially when they're being made. I so I had a, a car show in Monte Carlo, which I've sold in a few years back. But the car show that I co-founded in Monaco had many times James Bond-type um, exhibitors. We'd have special cars from the films, and we'd have new kind of cars which would have, which would fly or go underwater or swim. Um, and certainly my interest in that came from two things. One, where I was living, which is in Monaco, which is a car mad uh, country, and also with its Formula One and also with its um, interest in rallies and cars generally. It's the place with the most amount of Ferraris anywhere in the world, Aston Martins too. I've always felt a trinity between Bond and cars. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, I actually went with a whole bunch of us and we went around the Forca Pass in Switzerland, oh. all in DB5s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, and there's a funny story. And by the way, I will send you a clip for your YouTube videos. I will send you a clip that I took. Okay. So this clip is at the Belvedere Hotel in Forca Pass. And they've l- launched up six or seven DB5s. And they have the Daniel Craig lookalike wow. of Europe, who's a toilet salesman from Germany. Wow. <laughs> okay. And I will send you the clip. And he's there with all the DB5s. And a bus, a normal bus, not like a bus like was in Live and Let Die going under yeah. the Jamaica Bridge, but just a bus comes round the Belvedere Hotel and he sees the guy looking like Daniel Craig and he stops the bus. I filmed the whole thing. He stops the bus. <laughs> passenger on board. He gets out to take a selfie with James Bond. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, uh, I wonder good. to this day if he even knows it's not Daniel Craig. <laughs> The toilet uh, from Germany. It's just brilliant. I'll send you the clips when we get off. Fantastic. Thank you. Right. Okay, so then there's another thing you're doing with the metaverse and Meta World, right? So are you you involved in it's that? It's called event? Meta Entertainment World. Okay. We did it first time last year, okay. and we gave basically we realized that technology 
and entertainment need to have a way to meet. Right. Because at the end of the day, the technology would be the distribution, but we need the content to be distributed. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the metaverse was going to be the new answer to the future distribution. And one of the things I showed last year was something called haptic wearables. So in the future, you'll be able to watch a movie and have your T-shirt make you feel what you see. So mm -hmm. when somebody gets pushed, you'll wow. feel the push on your T-shirt. Wow. Um, yep. And that's kind of the, the future of where it's all going. Right. So the things we, we're showing and we believe are coming down the pike are things like 3D screens with no glasses. You'll okay. be able to look like, and you'll be able to actually have uh, uh, an immersive experience. And these things that are coming down the pike are um, wow. the next stage. So if you can imagine, years ago, you used to care about your answering machine at home. Now you mm -hmm. don't care about it anymore at all. Right. So it's the next, the next stage of how you will be able to shop and do things with a bank, do things that you currently do on a telephone but you'll be able to do it at the next level. So this conference, which we do in Monaco every year, is a conference that allows the people that do the, the entertainment or the content to meet and understand the technology so they understand what's the best thing to go in the pipe. Cool. Awesome. That's, that's fantastic. I generally believe that we have a, a duty to push it um, and by the way, if the best movie I've seen in 20 years is called The Swimmers, and it's on Netflix. Okay. It's just extraordinary. I saw it at the film festival in Zurich, and it just blew my mind. And it tells me the cinematography, it takes you from hope to despair to euphoria. It's just exquisite. Great, great, great filmmaking. The Swimmers. It's on, it's on Netflix. It was yep. funded by Netflix. A right. true story, too. Cool. All right, we'll have to check that I'll out. Take that one. Yeah, we'll take a look at that one. All right, this is good. Fantastic. We talked about a lot of stuff. Thank you very much, Stephen, for joining us today. It's been fun going through the Bond movie history with you. Your father's huge impact in the James Bond franchise and all the stuff you're doing as well and carrying on your father's tradition. Thank you very much for joining us. Someday we'll meet you. And uh, have a cocktail together. And have no, no cocktail. We have to eat. And I'm eat. good with that. Yeah. And uh, eat. Yeah. Any excuse for that, I'm up for. Okay. <laughs> hey, listen, because I'm feeling very charitable. If anybody has any questions, Bondy questions, I'm happy to give my opinion if they come through you. Wow. Oh, thank well, you very thank much. You. All right. <laughs> thank you. All right. We'll do that. We'll let you know who's saying what. Spy movie navigator proved. <laughs> well, thank you very much <laughs> alright that's a wrap wow lots of stuff that we did here this has been Dan and Tom I'm Steven Saltzman <laughs> right now I'm in Switzerland you know there you go from spymovienavigator.com and our podcast show Cracking the Code of Spy Movies please subscribe to our show and your favorite podcast app and on YouTube and yeah we're all over social media too thanks for listening we appreciate it